This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Hey everyone, if you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting in place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services, positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Hello, welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Black and White is recorded in Toronto, Canada, on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, and the Haudenosaunee and the Wendat peoples, and now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. My guest today is my friend and trusted financial advisor, Andrew Shepard. Andrew is the managing partner of Flatiron Wealth Management, a truly independent wealth management firm based here in Toronto and operating in the U.S. and Canada. Now, I met Andrew more than 10 years ago when I realized I needed some financial advice and some direction. And Andrew and his team at Flatiron helped me set a course for a better financial future. One of the first things I said to Andrew is that my priority was focused on my young children and how I could set them up for uh, future success by creating conditions for generational wealth. Uh, mostly foreign concept for my family going back generations. More recently, in the past couple of years, I sought Andrew's expertise as an advisor when I was writing my book, Black and White, specifically to add perspective on the realities of generational wealth and the wealth gap that exists between BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities in North America, which I was researching and writing about in my book. Through many discussions, Andrew helped me flesh out my ideas for action that could begin to remedy the generational wealth gap, a huge disadvantage for BIPOC people in our society. We'll get into that and more during our conversation today. You can't see him, of course, but take my word for it, Andrew is a tall, good-looking white man who also happens to be married to an Asian Canadian, originally from New Zealand, Munchau, who is also a key contributor at uh, Flatiron Wealth Management, and Andrew is also the proud father of three biracial children. We've discussed his family reality many times, especially in the past couple of years, and thought you'd benefit from his personal experience and perspective. Lots of ground to cover today, so let's get into this. Welcome to Black and White. Andrew. Thank you very much, Stephen. I sincerely appreciate you slipping handsome into that uh, yeah, intro. That yeah, is, you know, that made I my day. I Let's try, do this. I try and help my friends. You know, <laughs> I really wanted to take the time to say thank you to Andrew and the entire team at Flatiron for walking your walk, if you will, when it comes 
to demonstrating a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, starting with sponsoring this podcast. And, you know, your support is allowing us to essentially have season two of Black and White and to continue our important conversations about historical and current truths and the important changes that need to happen to eliminate systemic racism in our society. So again, a big thank you to you, Andrew, and your team. Yeah, that's great. We're very, very happy to be a part of helping to promote the conversations that you're having. Amazing. So let's start on the personal front. As I mentioned, Andrew is a white guy. I did say he was handsome. <laughs> and for as long as I've known him, which is over 10 years now, he's someone that's always been upfront with his personal understanding of the privilege or the advantage, as I like to call it, that he's inherited simply because of his whiteness. Not to diminish Andrew's accomplishment as he's an extremely hard worker and he's really had a lot of successes that he's earned for himself. Uh, what I want to ask you, Andrew, to, to start is from your own perspective on your lived realities around white advantage. Perhaps we can look at it pre-George Floyd and post-George Floyd because there's been a big global reckoning. Mm -hmm. Tell me, you know, from your perspective, when we talk about white advantage and that some people call it white privilege, what do you think about that? How do you see yourself within that context? I'm preparing to come on to the podcast, obviously, this is the, the central conversation that I, I thought that we would be having. So I put a lot of thought into it. It's a fairly new concept for me. And it's a topic I've had to have conversations with friends about people who are more involved in the DEI space. Uh, in particular, my best friend, Mira Gambier, who's got a PhD and she, she's operating that space. She's very generous with her time and her thoughts around it. And in thinking back, I, I just kind of to recognize there's a few things that I, I feel like I have had throughout my life. When you talk about an advantage, it's more things that I just don't have to think about, right? So growing up in Toronto and Canada and being white, I never had to think about my whiteness. It was never something that, that came up. It was never something that I ever thought I would ever have to explain or make an excuse for. And I never saw it as a barrier. And then at and then when I was 15, I all of a sudden I was like six foot five. So that's another advantage for sure, as far as being a tall man, tall white man walking into a room and never having to even consider those attributes to be anything other than uh, like a benefit for me. Which is interesting, by the way, because, you know, I'm six foot three and I can tell you walking in the room as a six foot three black man, there is a reaction. Right. Right. I've noticed all kinds of reactions. You know, I'm not always saying negative, but the, I've seen people's reactions where they've kind of been surprised. Right. Because usually I'm the first or the only. Right. Uh, yeah. Some people, maybe not so much in a boardroom, but walking down the street, I've seen some people who seem maybe a little bit frightened. So, so it's interesting. Yeah. It's something that I'm aware of, too, though. Like if I get into, into an elevator, to be honest with you, I'm very aware of the other person in that elevator, especially if it's a woman. Um, just to make sure that I'm giving space and I'm like as disarming as possible. I, so that's stuff that I'm aware of. But also when I walk into a room, I have no problem holding court and kind of establishing myself as an authority or somebody who has a joke to tell. And that's just something that comes very naturally to me. Having said that, I do have an experience of traveling outside of Canada. So I lived in different countries. In 1997, I went to Korea. I lived in Korea for a year and that was crazy. Mm -hmm. And it was like the first time that I was no, I was my being white and being tall, actually, like I was just standing out and I was, <laughs> you were I mean, a giant. I was a giant. <laughs> and it was, and, and I, I mean, I would literally get groups of, of men walking down the street and they would stop me and they would say like, what is your fighting style? Like, this was like a literal <laughs> thing that happened to me while I was living in Korea. And I was like, my fighting style. Like, I, I have no idea how to answer this. That's uh, funny. It was so, so it was, but it was the first time when I landed and it was really like, oh, wow. Like, what? like this, well, everybody's Korean and everything's in Korean. And I, and none of the rules that I was taught as a child matter here. They really just don't, they don't apply. So, and then from there, I went to Taiwan and I was in Taiwan for nine years. And again, I mean, I was hired to, to teach English. And, and so my whiteness, you could say was an advantage because I was getting paid pretty well just to teach English. But at the same time, I mean, I, I wasn't part of the culture. I was always outside of it. And just knowing that if I ever got into trouble, that I, I didn't really have much of a leg to stand on. And then the next experience after that was I lived in a village of about three to four million people in China. 
A village. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I and they didn't even speak Mandarin there. Like I, in living in t- Taiwan, I had studied Mandarin, so I, I have an ever decreasing amount of Mandarin that I'm able to speak. But uh, when I went to Taishing Shi, which is a city just north of Shanghai, they didn't even speak Mandarin, and I was the only. I was like, I was by far the first time they'd ever seen a white dude. So they would hold their babies up and be like, "Look at this freak!" Like uh, right in my face, <laughs> and they would gather, and I was like, "Wow!" So. I've had experiences where my whiteness was completely mooted, where there was not, and especially in China, I knew that if I ever got into trouble, if there was ever a dispute, that it was never going to go my way. Interesting. That, that was a, they knew where I was at all times. Uh, I was paraded around. I, I, and now I was making decent money, but it came with that price of just knowing that if anything ever happened, it was never going to go my way. And then I decided that that was not where I was going to build my life. Mm-hmm. I came back to Canada for a whole list of reasons. And well, inter- interesting that you uh, you're describing the experience of black people, people of color, indigenous people, in terms of always being the other yeah. in a white society. But you had a choice to leave in some ways to a place where you're back in the majority and feeling not threatened because simply because of the color of your skin. Yep. Very interesting. So how, how do you see it here in Canada that you've made your life here and your family? Uh, you're a professional. You've done quite well. And then, of course, now we have this global reckoning on race. And how has that informed your perspective on, on privilege or white advantages we, we've discussed? Yeah, it's. I, I think that, so my wife, Mun, who you've already mentioned, she's Chinese. She's Malaysian Chinese. She was born in Liverpool, so she's got that UK passport. And then she lived in Malaysia for a while, and then she lived in New Zealand. So she considers herself a Kiwi. And uh, her whole side of the family is Chinese, right? And so so my, my children have Gaga, who's my mom, and then they have Waipo, who is her mother. And we've had these conversations with them just to understand, like, being biracial. How, how do you feel? Who do you identify with? What, it hasn't necessarily come up coming from them, meaning their, their peers haven't brought it up. It hasn't been a conversation at all, but we've just brought it up. And they have, they have a complete comfort around the idea that they've got Chinese and they have, uh, they're white and they're Canadian and Kiwi. They see themselves as, as being all of these things all at once. And there's no gap between Waipo and Gaga. And uh, not only that, but looking at their peers and their classes, uh, one of my favorite things is to drop my youngest son who's four years old every morning off at kindergarten and just seeing his class. And it is diverse. There's legitimate diversity in his class. And so those are the things that are in my day-to-day that I see. And so then trying to reconcile that with other conversations is interesting because I don't I don't necessarily see it. But then sometimes it takes uh, a friend to point out that that's a privileged point of view. Yeah. And, and also that you're the head of a biracial family, mm-hmm. right? And we know that especially uh, with COVID, there was this big backlash and, and basically the increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans and Canadians. Of course, uh, our, the dumbass former president in the U.S. calling it the, the China, China virus, virus, right? Yeah. And I've talked to uh, Asian Canadians about that, and, and they told me um, there were moments where they felt threatened walking down the street and how people looked at them and talked to them and what they saw in the news and the, the higher level of uh, occasions of violence. Did Mun ever talk about that? Did that make you worry about your children? Uh, or that's something that didn't even touch your family. In all honesty, that in particular didn't touch our family at all. And I don't know if it's just because of COVID, we were all staying inside. <laughs> like yeah. it was around a time when we weren't out and about that much, to be honest with you. But I asked Mun about this, right? Because I wanted to know, was there any impact or did you did you see any ev- evidence of it? And she shared with me, it wasn't that specifically, but she has definitely experienced pushback since moving to Canada. Like just being, for example, when my kids were younger, they looked they looked white. Like, you know, to somebody walking down the street, they wouldn't necessarily know they were biracial. So the amount of time she was mistaken for the nanny and having specifically white women, just to be honest with you, it was every single instant was a white woman coming up and yelling at her, screaming at her on the street because the children didn't have gloves on and it was too cold and you don't know how to take care of this baby. And, oh my God. And it was, it was something that she was like, what is going on? It's like, like this is my child. Not only that, I mean, it was something stupid. Like she was literally taking the gloves off to wipe their hands or so, you know what I mean? Like it was none of this person's business, obviously. And yeah, yeah. my wife was not doing anything incorrectly, but so, like, like, like the confidence to insert themselves 
into a situation that they had nothing to do with. And then other things like where she's at the gas station and she's nine months pregnant and some, and it was an older white man behind her just screaming at her. She takes too long. She doesn't know what she's doing. Get back in your car. like, And she's just like, what the hell is going on? So those things she's sharing with me. And I was like, yeah, that's, I, I, I see that. So, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, so the, Well, I, I know what you mean because, yeah. you know, like you, my children look white, mm-hmm. right? So I live in the West End of Toronto and, and when they were little, same thing happened to me. They thought I was the Manny. <laughs> right, right, right. And they're they're kind of looking at the, you know, me pushing my kid and looking at me like, you know, who is this guy? Should he have this baby? Is he taking care of it properly? Right. So it's really interesting the perspective, right? I mean, my neighborhood is is primarily white. So so I hear I hear her. I know exactly what what she's related to and and you know, this is this is again back to most white people don't have to think about it or have people impose on them. Yeah. Right. And, and and just speaking to that, the last point is that it's so different when I'm with her. And when people don't think I'm with her and then I turn around and I am with her and all of a sudden the tone changes. Like somebody comes to the door being very aggressive with her and then I'm like, oh, how can I help you? And I have uh, confidence, tall white man. So uh, I'm sort of <laughs> protecting my home. Of course. Of right? Course. And uh, it's instant. Like the reaction is instant. What have been the conversations you've had with your friends and neighbors and your community in regards to uh, the issue of race and systemic racism as a biracial family and others who are not? Like, What are people talking about in your circles? And do you find there's polarization? I'm curious as to your personal experience in, in this you know, I guess we're heading towards the third year of this global reckoning since the murder of George Floyd. What what has been your experience over the last two years having these conversations with the people in, in your sphere? Um, so I would divide it into three different kind of spaces where the conversations would happen. One would be professionally, because I'm the managing partner of a firm, and we are going to be one of the largest firms in Canada. And we understand that there is a responsibility that comes with that to be leaders in the space and to be aware of it and conscious and representative of the direction that the population is heading. I mean, it would be silly just to not acknowledge that and make sure that we're that we're prepared for that and that we're addressing it. So that's one space. The other would be, I mentioned Mira already, my best friend, and she's in the space and she's articulate and she's generous with her time. And so the conversations I have with her are a little bit more specific and focused. But then the other would be just with general friends. And and I'll be honest with you, starting with that, it's just not coming up in conversation that much. Meaning, I mean, it's horrible. The stories are horrible and you hear it in the news and you're like, oh my, oh my God, like that is just brutal. And then- it's so it's so it's like then to have those conversations with with friends it's it's almost like opening up a can of worms i guess that nobody wants to open up and then it's like okay well where do we go from here once it's open and then i don't know i don't know so so i i it hasn't been happening i would say in general with friends yeah. where we're talking about these issues specifically yeah it's it's i like i like the i don't know yeah. right because i'm hearing that a lot and i think you know that was one of the I guess the objectives of writing my book, Black and White, which was to be prescriptive in some ways, mm-hmm. right? Which uh, which is going to lead us. So, and I want to touch more about the professional side, but one of the things that I want to pivot to now is one of the things that, that we've talked a lot about is the wealth gap, mm-hmm. right? Between BIPOC and non-BIPOC people. And really it comes down to generational wealth, which You've been talking to me about this, you know, for the last 10 years. One of the things when I was doing the research for my book that just struck me as crazy, but the reality is that in the next 25 years, there's going to be $63 trillion. This is a U.S. number, so ours apparently add a a few zeros there. (laughs) But $63 trillion will be passed on through generational wealth from one generation to another. Mm -hmm. And out of that, less than 3%. To black communities, imagine that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's it's crazy. Um, so we're gonna talk about that a little bit more. We're gonna talk about uh, why. We're gonna talk about the impacts of gener- generational wealth, and then we're also gonna talk about some ideas that you and I have discussed over the last couple of years uh, that I think are quite interesting. Um, so we'll come back with Andrew after the break. Great. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. 
I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Welcome back to Black and White. I'm Stephen Dorsey, your host. I'm here with my guest, Andrew Shepard, Managing Partner at Flatiron Wealth Management. Andrew, we're having a good conversation. I knew this would be good. We're really getting into it. Before the break, we were just talking about the generational wealth gap between BIPOC and non-BIPOC people in North America. It's huge. There's a a stat. I was speaking to a group uh, a couple months ago, and I was saying to them that if nothing changed, right? Everything, the status quo stayed the same. It would take something like 263 years to narrow that gap. You know what 263 years means? Never. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. yeah, It's like, so we have to do something about it. But first, let's go back a little bit, because one of the things that I think is important to do, and, and, and really, this is part of my learnings from Indigenous people, is, you know, when we talk about truth and reconciliation, and we were just talking about Manny Jules, he was the former chief of the Kamloops First Nation. I said to him, like, what does truth and reconciliation actually mean? He goes, before you can reconcile, you have to acknowledge the truths, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you were saying, we don't know what to do, or we don't know, we don't have those conversations relating to another, but this is it. We need to go look at the truths. We need to understand the truths. If you're not aware of them, you need to become aware of them, want to be aware of them, and then come to an understanding, right? And then acknowledge them and then try and reconcile around those. That's before you even get to the action to rectify the issues that we're talking about. One of the things I was, I'm just reading a lot of books right now, and and one of the authors is Andrew Hunter. And his book is called It Was Dark There All the Time. And he's really done a lot of study about enslavement in upstate New York and southern Ontario in the 19th century, prior to slavery being abolished and into that period. And one of the things that I, that he was looking at was, you know, talking about, he calls it the... Uh, uh, the racial uh, wealth gap, right? We call it, I'm calling it the generational wealth gap. And he was talking about, you've probably heard of this, you know, when President Lincoln was emancipating black people, General Sherman actually had a, a bill or something of that. And basically, it was that every uh, formerly enslaved black person would get 40 acres and a mule. Mm-hmm. You're probably familiar with yeah. that term, right? And essentially, um, that was... Uh, after Lincoln was killed, they basically set that aside, right? And one of the things that's really interesting, because we were talking just earlier about this $63 trillion of generational wealth. So in that, he talks about, and he says, if they had gone through with it, Black people at that time in 1865 and after, it would have equaled close to $800 billion of 1865 dollars, mm-hmm. right? 
imagine I did the calculations, went into my little Google calculator, <laughs> uh, future value, and that would be close to $14 trillion today. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. Imagine the what a different world that would be for Black people and I'm assuming people of color. Instead, Andrew, mm -hmm. they didn't get that. Instead, the U.S. government actually compensated slave owners $300 per slave, right? And then we know about all the other stuff. So we're talking about millions of Black people who had nothing, right, because they were slaves. They didn't even have their own names, no culture. This is all the way back through the centuries and all the way up to now. Black people and people of color, Indigenous people, were really uh, left out of professional roles. They couldn't become doctors and lawyers. And this is like until the mid-60s mm -hmm. of, of the 20th century, <laughs> right? So just giving a little bit of context. And so what I want to talk about is this generational wealth gap and just give some, some context about that. So today, how do we remedy this? Because we know that the generational wealth gap has lots of implications. Tell me traditionally when we, when we look at creating generational wealth, what are the basics there and what is it that obviously firms like yourself do and investing in financial planning and generate was not something that even was discussed because it wasn't really part of the reality. So tell me a little bit about this generational wealth and how it's created, why it's important, and why we need to be looking at that as one of the remedies for systemic inequality. Okay, that's a, yeah, that's a lot. Yes. Um, okay, so so to try to unpack what we do and the way that we would approach this generational wealth gap, and and this all started with a conversation that we had uh, where you you just asked me like what what are your thoughts on this? And this is my lens. This is my expertise. This is the way I. This is what I spend most of my day thinking about for my clients and in just in general. Um, and so as a certified financial planner, there are six areas that we, we uh, take a look at when we're working with clients, and we want to be able to address those with every client. And this is how we're creating wealth, and we're finding efficiencies, and we're essentially creating that generational wealth for, for them and, and their families. So the first is financial management. So it's understanding how, the, how cash flow works, how debt works, having a literacy about it, and making sure you're as efficient as possible. So you're not you're not bleeding out all of your money to fees and to just inefficiencies and not making smart decisions. That's uh, a really important starting place. Making sure that you have wills and powers of attorney in place. Like these are these are just things to make sure that your family is taken care of. And if you don't have them, the rest of the planning is somewhat moot because what I mean it's the the plan goes beyond everybody sitting at the table. Yeah, that's that's always something that we talk about. And then the next thing is insurance. So the acronym that we use is FITRE, F-I-I-T-R-E. That was when I was studying for my financial planning. <laughs> okay. So you want to be fitter after you've done it. That's what they used. Anyway, it's stuck. So I guess it was effective. So the two I's, the first is insurance and the next is investment. But in insurance comes before investment because that's your risk protection. Meaning, number one, I want to make sure you never run out of money. But I also want to make sure that even if you get sick or hurt or you die, that you're going to be okay if you're sick or hurt. Or, but also your family's going to be okay. Yes. Because yes. that is one of the biggest risks, especially if you're the main earner. Or uh, just kind of relating this back, looking at, a, at some statistics that uh, Catalyst put out, just looking at the average wage, um, people of color versus white, and specifically women of color. 58.7% of all men, that their average salary is, that's where it's sitting. So, so Versus white men. Well, all men. All men, so, really. Interesting. Yeah, men of color is 79.2%. Yes, yes, yes. So, so, so no matter what we talk about, whenever I was looking up statistics so that I could understand what we we're talking about, I wanted to make sure that I had, I had had an understanding of really what we're addressing. And every single one, regardless of who was doing it in what area, it was uh, people of color. There was a gap uh, as far as earnings and, and wages, but women of color were always significantly less. Yes. Almost equal, like it's almost an equal jump down. Yeah, it's meaning crazy. like if it's eighty percent for men of color, uh, men, uh, then it's like it's like sixty eight, like it's another twenty percent yes, drop. Yes. So, so what without without getting into that, right? Because I don't know, like, meaning that what the reason why that gap exists and how to address that specifically. What what it does tell me is that they're the most vulnerable people. Yes, if something ever happens to them, or if a partner passes away, or they like the the, the uh, especially single mothers of color are clearly. 
the most vulnerable just based on that statistic. Completely right? disadvantaged. Yeah. So again, this is where that risk protection becomes really important for them and the success of their family. And it's interesting because that is actually one of the first places we started together. Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, we were talking about my children and we were talking about investing, starting with their educational fund. And then you said to me, and then we should get them insurance. I said, what, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so just could we just touch on that a little bit? Because I had never heard of this before of actually getting insurance for young children and explain that to me because sure and this is something that i knew nothing about i was i certainly was like first of all insurance is not isn't that sexy of a topic and so uh, and then when i ended up getting into the industry coming out of my mba and deciding that i wanted to join a firm where essentially we're selling insurance and, and mutual funds this was all a new concept to me and the, but this was probably the most attractive strategy that I saw for insurance. And I immediately did it for all my children as they were born. So uh, I believe that when I sold you the first policy, when I pulled out Taya, my oldest daughter, I pulled out her policy to say like, this is what I'm telling you, I think every single parent should do. And so the idea is that you can have a whole, a permanent life insurance policy. And one of the benefits, and it's called a participating policy. So you're participating in, in an investment pool that the insurance company is administering uh, on behalf of, of uh, all the owners of the policies. What it does is it issues a dividend, which is then used to buy more insurance inside of the policy. So it's all it's all inside of the, the tax sheltering of the insurance policy. And it's a feedback loop in the way that the more dividends you earn, the more insurance you're able to buy, which means your dividend gets higher, which means you buy more insurance. So it has this positive tax-free feedback loop, and it gives you some significant benefits if you own this policy. Um, the first is that it ends up becoming an asset that you can borrow against. You, you can use it the same as collateral, the same way that you use your house, except that you're able to use up to 90%. Right. So you can borrow it from it. As we talked before, you can borrow it by the time your kids need to go to school. They can borrow some of it to go to college or university. They can borrow if they maybe to help with part of the down payment on a home or if they're starting a business, et cetera. Yeah. They could, yeah, exactly. So, th so you have this completely separate asset that is growing, and every year that that new amount is locked in, so it's not volatile like other investments. And you have a certain amount that you're able to use as leverage to borrow against. So it's a completely separate asset. So that's very powerful. And then the kicker is, it's an insurance product, right? So the kids have uh, after twenty years, I believe, they have. They have life insurance. Well, they have life insurance from day one, but yeah. you don't. But when you're buying this insurance for children, you can pay like two hundred fifty dollars a month is what I'm paying for each of my children, give or take, because it kept getting more expensive as yes. cheap. So I had to keep upping it to <laughs> yeah. make it equal. But let's just use two fifty. So you're so that I'm only paying that for per month for for twenty years. So in total, I'm putting sixty thousand dollars into this over a twenty year period. But my children from day one have life insurance that is growing and growing and growing. And by the time they're 80 years old, it's worth something like $5 million of life insurance. And then it, if they live to 100, which is definitely possible. I have three clients right now who are over the age of 100. So this is Amazing. a trend that is happening. Yes, of course. It, it gets exponentially higher to like $7 million, $8 million. So, so the other aspect of it is that there's the opportunity to potentially take dividends out of it at some point where it's generating dividends and you're not buying more insurance, but you're taking it as supplemental income. So there's three different really, really strong attributes. To so this. just before we leave, so so let's say, uh, I, and I hope so, both my children are healthy, they live to 100, they pass away, they have children and grandchildren by this time probably. So when they pass, this life insurance policy pays off. Yeah. Right. And now they're essentially passing on the five plus million dollars. Tax free. Tax free. So this is, I'm telling you, Andrew, and I know I told you this, I'd never heard of this before. Right. Yeah. So this is, this is why it is so important, but, and this is where we're going to go later, but talking about the accessibility of these kinds of ideas and programs. Yeah. All right. Keep going. I want to hear about, because you were only on point three. Yeah, actually, that was point two, insurance. So yeah. the next one is investments. And so that's just having an, a comfort level with understanding what like what an investment portfolio should look like and having some language, basic language, but ultimately working with a professional who can help you with that to kind of guide you with that, mostly just not make stupid mistakes. <laughs> yes. But But then after that, the T is for tax planning. And so for me, that is actually the thing that I – I focus, that's where I focus most of my time on is making sure that you're being smart. We all pay taxes and we all are very, you know, we're part of this together and we all are paying into it. But 
there, you don't have to be sloppy with the way that you pay your taxes, sure, right? Course, like if you, there are opportunities out there and you should be able to take advantage of them. And if there's if there are ways that you're able to set up your cash flow or the way you're able to take income, I want my clients to be able to take advantage of those. So tax planning is really important. Um, and then the, the R is for retirement planning. So making sure like, what is the goal? When do you, what, what does that look like? How are we going to make that happen? And how are we going to make sure that when you retire, this is not your number one stress. You are not worried that someday you're going to be eating cat food. That sort of peace of mind, right. Absolutely. Leads to a huge, a huge amount of quality of life, but also like, what do you want to do? Do you want to help other people out? Or do you, do you want to golf your brains out? Like, yeah. what is it? Travel, That's fine. Whatever. Yeah. Let's, let's write it down and let's, Give it a budget and let's make sure you can enjoy that. Yeah. And then the the E on the end is estate planning. Often when we when we run our financial plans, when we come up to the estate report, this is usually the most shocking for most people. There's two reasons. Number one is through the process of going through the planning, most people cannot believe the amount of money that their estate is going to be worth. Like we're talking, like it's not uncommon for multiples of millions of dollars to be passed on through the work that we're doing with them. Amazing. So this is kind of my learnings over the years working with you and having a great relationship and and you've really structured that for me and my family. Uh, getting back, you know, we were talking about this insurance product and $250 a year and we talked about all that. So when I came back to you, I said, you know what you're doing for me and my family? And I wonder like, how could we do that for marginalized communities, right? Mm -hmm. People who have been disadvantaged, Black people, people of color, Indigenous people. And and I was specifically looking at, you know, over the decade, there's been lots of talk about, especially in the United States, for reparations to Black people because of slavery and discrimination for over 400 years. There's been a lot of pushback as well. And people saying, you know, I wasn't there. Why is it my fault? And things like that. But Canada and the U.S. has paid reparations directly to individuals. But my thinking was that can be complicated. It can be convoluted. Um, it can be, I think the general population may be more defensive in regards to- It becomes political. Yeah, political and all that. And so I remember calling you and say, listen, you know, let's just start with this investment part and, and the insurance. And I said, how could we do that? And we were talking about, and I wrote about this in my book and you and I were kind of fleshed it out a little bit thinking like, instead of reparations and sending out checks to people, we created a fund, right? Like an impact mm -hmm. fund that would be initially populated fuel by funds from the government from different you know and significantly and then we took that and managed it like uh, like a pension fund if you will but specifically around uh this insurance initiative that we you've just described and the other things around it and investments and all that and then we could you know um uh have tiered approaches of different families uh, from marginalized communities, some who can't afford to make any payments to buy the monthly insurance uh, policy, some who could pay a little bit, some who pay more, but really having a diverse group and then slowly funding that. And as you were saying, eventually, once you get to a critical mass, right, you start actually generating your own revenues through dividends. And of course, that the fund grows uh, because it's been invested, it's been managed properly. But that's what really got me excited. And so I guess my question to you is, can you share a little bit more with us how the mechanics of that could possibly work? Yeah, we did have that conversation. And it really was like, how would we ideally be able to just expand this? Exactly what I do every day for my clients, but specifically target a certain segment. Uh, the idea would be, if, uh, as you said, if you, if you were able to have an, an investment pool that was able to generate a return that could that was that had a critical mass that could feed into it then from my point of view the idea would be to um, be able to purchase insurance policies for people in certain communities and then number one it would start to mitigate that risk that they're exposed to so that right from day one it's almost like a leveling of that that risk that they're exposed to and it does be, provide a lot of comfort to somebody knowing that if something happens to them that their family is going to be taken care of Absolutely. Right. So I think that that just right off the bat is something that, and it's not political. What I, the other thing too, is that I, that's not my realm. I'm not trying to be political and I'm not trying to solve problems in that space. It's really applying skills and techniques in order to increase uh, the wealth of a group of an individual or a group of individuals. So having the insurance in place. And then also, I think another really important part of a strategy like this working is 
buy-in from the community. Like meaning there needs to be, it needs to be people from the community who have the understanding and ultimately are are running it and and creating a feedback loop in that way as well. Meaning this is financial management. This is an area that is going to is beneficial for a group of individuals to understand, especially the way that it works in Canada, like like specific or in the States, if that's where you are and, and specific to your region. But there are specifics that you need to understand in order to take advantage of uh, of the opportunities that are out there. And they're available to everybody, but it's a lack of understanding. And maybe it's just a lack of not really being that interested because you have other things that you're worried about in the day. But Well, there are organizations like the Black Business Professionals Association. They work with people for, on financial literacy for those who are entrepreneurs or wanting to start their business. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, Ross Cadastre, who's the president on the board there, he was saying, you know, you have a lot of entrepreneurs or people that go, you know, everyone loves my food. We love your jerk chicken. We love your fricassee chicken. And so they go, we should start a restaurant. And they start a little place and they get going. And then they realize they don't have any other part of the business, right? right. They don't understand costing. They don't understand inventory management and all the things that goes into a successful growing and scaling business. So this is just another financial management, which which for many people, myself, I admittedly, I didn't even pay attention to for decades of my life. Yeah. Right. So I get it. Again, like our relationship with money and financial management, you think about it, like if you, if you get married and you have a partner, then each of you are coming with a completely different ideas and views about it, which are coming from both of your parents, each of you. So we're talking about four grandparents potentially that have shared their feelings about it. So it becomes very complicated very quickly. But I, I think that this is a space that I have seen a lot of the initiatives as far as providing support for, for people in the BIPOC community, having education around how to operate in, in the sea level. I think it was the Black North Initiative has specifically Black North yes. Academy. Yes. And uh, and I think that's fantastic, right? But I, I haven't seen anything specifically for this uh, area where there are scholarships and mentoring and internships specifically to have people of from from the BIPOC community enter the industry and have the expertise so that they are able to connect with their own community. So it seems to me that the idea of this, this impact fund driven by an insurance kind of system, uh, proper management, being able to bring more families into the SIMHAT, building a critical mass, obviously funded by the federal government or provincial governments, all sources of government. And then eventually you have, you know, 100 families, 500 families, 1,000 families. There's a way that they're also participating to uh, give back to the, the possibly in terms of not taking all of the, the dividends out, maybe some of them go back to the fund, whatever, all kinds. We, we played around a lot of different yeah. ideas, right? And then you were saying, well, eventually you're creating the, this investment fund that now you can do other things. Sure. Right? Uh, not only in terms of having a, be able to even create a bank, if you will. Right. I think you mentioned that. Yeah. That, that, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know specifically because like, you're getting into different areas that are under different regulators yes, so I, exactly. without getting into like how yes. big this could get. I think that, that, that really like the, the fundamental idea would be to have a critical mass of wealth that was generating enough to finance this basic risk protection. Yes. Then having buy-in and education opportunities and internships so that people from the community are able to ultimately take over and run it and manage it, honestly, and have that direction and be able to connect with the community. And and what's important about that for me is that whatever we create, let's like wherever we're going with this, whatever manifests, right? I think it's really important that it's portable and it can be dropped in any community and it can be like, it's it'll end ultimately be a template for any community that feels like this would be of benefit to them. Yes. It's a template. It's like, you you can do it. This is, oh, this is what it takes. This is how we would implement it. And then it's theirs to be able to run. So you could target, like even people who are coming in, uh, like immigrants to Canada, refugees who are coming in, they're severely disadvantaged from day one. How are they going to get caught up so that they are participating in Canadian society the way we all want them to, obviously. Yeah. We all want them to. Yeah. It's There's no way that we want a, one a segment of society to not participate and not be productive and not be able to succeed here. We all want this. And to get there faster, refugees do very well in Canada, yeah. right? Many open their own business. They're mostly all employed within 10 years. Like, it's actually a great success story, but imagine accelerating that. Just having, well, yeah, why would we not provide something so that if there was buy-in and we had the resources set up and there was a pathway that we're saying, yeah, this is how 
how you can get there. And I and I like the fact that it's and I say not complicated. It's pretty, you know, by the numbers. Yeah, <laughs> right? it's not there's yeah. You know, and it, it's like it's like uh, you know, obviously every investment fund goes up and down, but essentially the mechanisms of it already work. It's not we're not reinventing the wheel here. Nothing. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just simply starting to implement it. Like that really is it and it doesn't really take much sign off. You know, like we just, it's just as far as there needs to be buy-in and there needs to be assets. I mean, when we're starting anything, there needs to be assets for us to work with. Well, this with. is where, this is my point. This is where, again, what what's better, sending $20,000 check to individuals or building a fund for communities? Yeah. Right? It has a massive feedback loop if that investment was going to be made, especially if the if there was an, the idea of being able to provide investment for generational wealth for certain communities, for children, that $60,000 over, I mean, that the, the child benefit, whatever that is, it's $250 a month exactly. going into this policy. Exactly. That is going to have a massive amplified effect the next generation Trans of Canadians. Transformative. Yeah. Transformative. I agree. You touched on it just a few minutes ago, but the other part that we had talked about is uh, the financial sector, financial yeah. literacy, and all that stuff. I want to read this to you because it's really important. Um, and it just like blew me away. Only 63 out of 1,050 black lawyers in Ontario, which represents only 6%. So the 1,050 black lawyers represents 6% of all lawyers were partners. So only 63. That's only 0.2% of all lawyers in the province. Conversely, 18% of white lawyers, 4,800 out of nearly 27,000 were partners. This highlights two concurrent issues in the legal field in Ontario. A general lack of diversity and inequality in leadership positions. Right. So we're talking about the Black North Initiative, West Hall, yeah. specifically talking about representation in C-suite and on boards. But you and I talked about your firm. I'm always very impressed by the goals that you've stated for your business and the you've achieved them and you're going towards that direction. So I'm, I'm uh, and I'm so I'm glad I'm part of the Flatiron family, <laughs> if you will. But uh, now that you're the managing partner of, uh, you know, you're, you're building this growing and scaling this team, how do you see diversity and equality and inclusion, uh, equity, uh, how manifesting itself within the financial wealth management sector, the industry as a whole, and specifically in, in your organization? Yeah, that's great. So there's two sides that I'd, I'd want to touch on on this. One about our firm and the staff and the team that we're putting together, and one about the clients coming through the door. So I think that both of those are kind of interesting for us to see, because we had the conversation ab about this. And um, and number one is that we see far more diversity in the new clients coming on than there ever has been. It's a noticeable difference. I've been doing this about 15 years, and just a massive shift towards uh, more members of the BIPOC community seeking out advice and wanting to understand how to work within the system and how to benefit and how to work with a, uh, somebody who can help them to, to address all the issues that we talked about earlier. And what do you think is the driver of that? I don't know. I don't know if it's because they're more, like a lot of them are second generation Canadians. So they grew up in Canada and they have a comfort level with it. And so business as usual for them. Got it. It's not as foreign of an idea. Okay. And to trust somebody to come down and give them advice and follow their advice and say like, yeah, I'm trusting you, right? Like yes. it's a big deal. It's, it's just happening, which is really interesting for us. And we had that conversation to say, well, it is something that's worth, that we hadn't really thought about, but then because of the conversation that we're having uh, with you, um, it uh, it was something that, that came up and noted. Now with our team, there's a little bit of a challenge here because we recognize that we are a lot of white men working in downtown Toronto finance. Like, uh, my wife is the director of operations, and she runs the entire business. She's she's Asian, she's Chinese, and so she's like running everything. And then and so we do have diversity on the team, but in the advisory channel in particular, we recognize like this is this is we are white men who are doing this. And so this is a conversation that we are having to say we're looking to have a DEI strategy, and we want to hire and have diversity in the firm. This is a goal that we have. And what we mean by this is women and people of color. And so what has been interesting though for us is that we have put this out there without really knowing, to be quite honest to you, what is the strategy to, to, to implement this. Most of the talent that is coming uh, to the door is not diverse. Like we're not getting a lot of members of the, of the black uh, community coming to the, to the door. 
uh, to say like, I'd like to be an advisor and I'm, I'd like to fill this position or I'm interested in, in what you're offering. So, so when you're looking at all your candidates and there's three white guys, you're like, okay, well, this is the, these are, these, these are the people that are showing up. Yeah. And so I don't. White, off white cream. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Like if, if we're trying to be diverse, we're like, well, he's, how tall is he? Like, like <laughs> that's not, it doesn't really count as di diversity. Right. But, but this is a, and this is, I love to hear the, the reality on the ground. Right. Because, you know, I was talking to Wes Hall about this, who leads the black North initiative and, and he's talking about representation. And, and I wrote an article about this, an op-ed. And I said, you know, you can't just make up black people. Right. Yeah. If we just take black people, it's not like you just can't create their black professionals, right, who are ready to ascend to senior levels. You have to groom, you have to. And where does that start? You have to create a pool of talent somewhere. Right. And, and this is, you know, I, I, I'm very uh, passionate about this, but you have to go into the communities and inspire young people. Right. Yeah. Right. First, we have uh, here in Ontario, we have to get, you know, I've been talking about this for a while now, but, you know, we've been streaming black people, black kids into non-academic streams here for decades in this province. It's just, they're just talking about changing or saying, oh, we're not doing it right. We don't want to do it anymore, but they're still kind of doing it. So that has to change so that more black kids are inspired to learn and to want to go to college and are given the tools and the support they need to aspire and achieve and be successful so that they can even get to university and college, gain if some of them want to go into finance and investments and all of those things and accounting and so on, so that they can then get hired, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, somewhere and gain some experience. And eventually, like any community of professionals, they're going to go, hey, I'm, I need to advance and I'm going to find new opportunities. And those opportunities are open yeah. to them, yeah. right? Which is what we're talking about here. And therefore, hopefully, more diverse people are part of your pool that's available. Yeah. And the other thing that, so all of those points I agree with, and it's stuff we've talked about, which is where the scholarship comes from and the yes. internship. And like, so create a pipeline so that there's, just to know this is actually a career that's out there that you can have, you can make some decent money at that can be quite enjoyable. Like, I don't know if that's, I don't know, uh, like if this lack of awareness of, because I didn't know about it until I took a course at university. And I was like, oh, this is actually a thing I can but do. Th but this is what I'm saying, Andrew, like there's, that that you, this is even it exists. You know, I tell the story in my book about, you know, I had this passion for film and television as a little kid and grew up and stuff. And I went to high school and nobody told me what I could become or be or the opportunity. Yeah. No one told me there was such a thing as film school, right? That I could go yeah. to a school, a university and learn to be a writer or a script writer or be a technical person or being a financial people person in in the film and television business right so if you if your community is not exposed to that be it by laissez-faire education or people that don't care or people who are actually opposing or creating barriers then how are you supposed to reach for a passion right. career right so i like what you talked about you know because that was part of your ideas as well as like going back and reaching the communities 100 percent, right so starting at a young age too right financial literacy and, in, and inclusive financial literacy and like this is all the possibility because that's i mean at some point somebody planted a seed in my head and then i was like oh really like that's that's what that's how large my firm could be yes and it was an astronomical number to me at the time and we 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 did it. You know what I mean? But yes. somebody had said it to me out of the blue at a dinner. So do you know who you are? Do you know what you're going to do? This is your potential. I've, and I was like, whoa, I can't believe that that just happened. And then, and, and then it happened because, and, it, and, and I don't think if that person hadn't said that to me, that it would have. The one last point that I want to make though about our firm and, and looking to expand diversity and having a policy is that it also leads to some pretty awkward conversations to be quite honest with you, where you're kind of like counting. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, we have, well, my wife is Chinese and she's a female. So, okay, that counts. And we have an employee who is black. So that, I don't know, but it just gets into like a weird space that where we are having conversations that are, that are potentially awkward because we're, we want to participate and we want to be a, a part of positive change. Yes. Then you're like, but how do we do it? And if it's not happening fast enough, then uh, for, for what we want, because we've said we want this, then you start getting into those kind of conversations. And then it's like, well, this is this is, doesn't feel right. Well, this is where having a real equity, diversity, inclusion strategy 
mm-hmm. that is grounded in a people first strategy and authenticity and a real willingness to make the change happen versus we have a quota. Yeah. Right. So those are two different things. Right. So, and I know in a growing a firm, a business and scaling it, uh, there are a lot of priorities, right, that can be before EDI, right? Even though I would say that organizations that do invest that are more diverse are more successful in terms of the bottom line mm-hmm. and uh, those that are publicly traded, right, in terms of returns on investments. So so there, the case is there to go in that direction. But, you know, I speak and I facilitate lots of conversations, but I think that's where you know, if, uh, turning the tables, I would give you advice, you know, to Flatiron is that, you know, getting to the strategy that is really fleshed out in terms of how you are a diverse organization in practice mm-hmm. is more important than the numbers, right? I agree. Right? It's just that the numbers are quoted. Like, that's the yeah, problem. Like, that's the... But you will get to the... But the thing is that I, I'm all about KPIs and getting to those. But those are, if you're doing the work of building, then the numbers will come mm-hmm. because you will just be acting with that mandate. Yep. Right? And then you will attract that talent because they'll know that's the place they can thrive and be successful and be supported. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, you know me, I'm a branding marketing person, but that's how marketing and branding works, yeah. right? Is people start to trust your brand and respect your brand, whatever that brand is and what you do, it doesn't matter what the sector is. And so that's where I think a lot of the conversations need to shift to is like, it needs to be a, a such a strong pillar that it defines who as part of who you are as an organization. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think you're right. Having a clear strategy that you can point to and uh, understanding that it doesn't happen next month. And being transparent. And this yeah. is a, you may not meet your goal. Yeah. Right, but you're you're striving for it, right? And then you're you know just like anything, we've got to modify the plan because it's not quite working right. Yeah. Right. And then eventually that day will come where the candidates in front of you will be much more diverse. Yeah. Right. And and the resume. So I like the fact that you're doing the work, and that's a great start. Yeah. I always try and and then with a hopeful note. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about your family. Uh, essentially, you're a biracial family. You have three lovely children. And lovely wife. She's also one of your partners in the business in terms of working with you. What do you think, you know, with all this reckoning on race and and the change, hopefully, that is coming, what do you see for the future for your children in regards to uh, the world that they're going to grow up into in terms of diversity and, and equity and inclusion, and then being able to really do whatever they want? Yeah, I mean, the question that you had you've asked uh, around being hopeful and so I would say that, I mean, I mentioned it earlier. One of my favorite things to do is drop my son off at kindergarten every morning and all the kids like instantly just start running and playing together. And it's just such a nice way to start the day. And I mean, that is just, be- it's just a beautiful thing, right? Like that, like they, there's zero, none of these issues exist on the playground with them. And I see it becoming more and more diverse and it being an effortless mix. So from that point of view, my kids don't, they haven't experienced it. They don't, they don't see it and they, and all the opportunities are there in the world for them. And I think that the fact that we're having these conversations are fantastic and that we, like these, these types of conversations, maybe even five years ago, maybe even, I don't know how, how recently it's uncomfortable to have these, it's still uncomfortable, right? Like this is not an easy, you can't just bring this up at like dinner. <laughs> like, oh, by the way, can we chat about this a yeah, bit? Yeah. Well, How's well, everybody think? Yeah, I do. <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, you do. <laughs> but I mean, I don't think that, I don't think that everybody is comfortable no. to bring it up. Right. But the fact that we're having them, the fact that this podcast exists and the fact that we have, uh, that we have, we can see strategies that we're having conversations to start it, I think is extremely positive. Even if you see like how far things have come over the last 20 years, really since I started, I'll just use my career, right? Over the last 15 years, some of the changes that I've implemented are definitely going in the positive, in a positive direction. And they're not always comfortable and they're not always easy, but uh, just in just the creation of, uh, of things like the Black North Initiative, I think is fantastic that we have that. That's something that we can look at that is there that we can get on board with. It's, it's easy. You could do that today. So I feel really positive about that. And for my kids, the things that are so easy for them to accept, there's no challenge for them to accept any of their friends, no matter what their choices are, no matter how they choose to dress, no matter how they choose to act or like all of these things that maybe 
Gen Xers or even baby boomers, if you want to go, it's such a big deal. It's so important. You can't do this and you can't do that. And why are you doing this? And it makes no sense. To them, it's just, it doesn't matter. It's all good. Everything is, they're they're very open to it. So I I find that to be, it just makes me very, very happy. We'll end on that happy note. Amazing. Thank you, Andrew. Great conversation. That's why I love this podcast. And again, a big thank you to Flatiron Wealth Management and, and your entire team. Uh, for supporting the Black and White Podcast. Uh, To learn more about Flatiron Wealth Management, please visit their website at www.flatironwealth.com. We'll also have information posted on the Evergreen Podcast website. Andrew, let's speak soon. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, and take the time to rate our show. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to my producer, sound designer, and engineer, Noah Fouts, and our executive producer, David Allen Moss. A reminder that my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the path to change, is available at your favorite bookstores across the US and Canada, and online at Amazon and Indigo Chapters. I'm Stephen Dorsey, reminding all of us that we can all be better, do better so that eventually we can all live better together. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.